I said in my introduction, I want to talk today about why are we here? Why do we gather together? What do we come here to for? I mean, what's the reason? And I mean, obviously you could say, well, God calls us to, and that's a really good answer. And we probably could go the rest of the year and just talk about reasons that we gather and do a whole series on it. But I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to take one verse today from the book of Hebrews and talk about why we are here today. I'm going to hover over three verses in the New Testament that give us a little idea of why we gather here today. So in Hebrews 10, verse 23, it says this. It says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep His promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I think it's pretty obvious in the scripture that meeting together is pretty important. God calls us to do it. He says, do not neglect meeting together. And he says, don't neglect meeting together online as well. I know some of you that are online are choosing to be home because of safety concerns and COVID, and we respect that. This is not a message to say if you watch online, you're disqualified or you're not participating. Well, I think it's great when we can come together, but I understand some people, there are limitations right now that you need to stay at home. So you are included, so please don't think this is a message about that. But this is for people that really aren't even, not even listening to my message because they find no reason to gather together or even join in any kind of Christian community. So I love these three little verses. I mean, it is a, a word to say, hey, you need to gather with other people. And it's a very encouraging three verses. See, the book of Hebrews is written to the early church. It's written to new believers that are walking with Christ for the first time. And some of these people are feeling pretty discouraged. They're not feeling like they're not really sure what they're doing. They're not really sure if following Jesus is worth it. And some of them are wondering, maybe they should just go back and live the way they used to. I mean, how many of you recognize that your default sometimes when things aren't going the way, when you're trying something new, you think, well, I'll just go back and do it the way I did it before. And that's the way some of these early Christians are feeling, thinking maybe this following Jesus, maybe the, what's, what's it worth it? I think I want to go back to my old ways. So the book of Hebrews is part of the purpose of the book of Hebrews is encourage the early Christians to hang in there. To encourage the early Christians and to remind them that the relationship with Jesus is better than anything that they had before. It's to remind people of what Jesus has done in your life, that because of Jesus, you have a relationship with God. That you have a personal relationship with God, you have access to God, and you have full assurance of your salvation, and you have a hope for a future. So it's kind of a boiled down to what is the book of Hebrews about? To remind people that your life with Jesus is better than anything that you had before. And then comes verse 23 in, the, in chapter 10. And the author reminds us to hold on to the promises that God has given to you. In other words, it's saying remember what the Bible says. Remember what you read in the Bible and believe that it's true. And don't give up just because you're not seeing things that are happening that maybe you desire to see happen. So the author's clearly saying, hold tightly to the promises of God. Hold tightly to the word of God. Hold tightly to the Bible and don't let it go. And then comes verse 24 and 25 that remind us to live in community. It's interesting on the first verse is saying, hey, 
It's easy to let go. You got to remember to hold on. And then the second instruction is live in community. And I love how verse 24 starts when it says, let us think of ways to motivate other people. Let's think of ways that we can encourage other people. That when you come to church and gathering, when you drive to church on the way there, think about how could I encourage somebody else? How could I encourage Lori? How could I encourage Jake? Do we think of that on our way to church? How could I encourage other people? But the author saying that clearly. Think of ways to encourage other believers. That's kind of a refreshing thing to do. I think over the last year and a half, we've been caught up in a, like, how can we criticize somebody the most? And the author is saying, no, do the opposite. How could you encourage people the most? And it's interesting, that's kind of an antidote for when you want to disbelieve and you're not going to hold on to your promises. He's saying, gather together and think of ways to encourage other people. I think sometimes our default is when we think I need an encouragement, we come to church and say, I just want to receive. But the instruction here is when you need encouragement, sometimes you need to give encouragement. That you need to give something that you actually need. The scripture would tie in well with this theme this month about bearing each other's burdens. How do you bear each other's burdens? Sometimes you encourage other people. You think of ways to encourage other people. You think of ways to encourage other people to do acts of love and good works. And then in verse 25, he says, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect that. It's a pretty strong word when he says, don't neglect it. It's not saying, hey, it's optional. If it works out well for you, if you have the time or if you have the ability or you want to get up early, go. He's saying, no, don't neglect it. Make it a priority. And I'm grateful that all of you do on that. So you're here today with us because you made it a priority today. And so it's an encouraging three verses. I like those verses. Hey, don't forget to hold on to your promises. Remember to encourage other people. And remember to go to church. Kind of encouraging words. But really, inserted into these three verses is a strong warning. There's a very strong warning. If you read Hebrews 10, which we just read, through the eyes of of the book of Numbers, chapter 13. If you read this passage through the eyes of Numbers 13, you see there's kind of a strong warning here. In Numbers 13, God had instructed the Israelites to hold fast to the promises that he gave them as well. You might remember in the book of Numbers, the Israelites got out of Egypt. God had rescued the Israelites from Egypt. He saved them from the ten plagues. He got them across the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness. And now they are getting close to entering into the promised land. The land that God promised that he would give them. And God says to the Israelites, he says, okay, I want you to send in spies first. Go into this new land I'm going to give you. I want to know what you're in for. But also I'm going to defeat your enemies, so don't worry what you see. And what happened to the Israelites, they got into the promised land, they saw the enemies, and they came out and said, no, it's too big. We can never never overtake our enemies. They got discouraged because what they saw in the natural, even though what God said to them in the supernatural is that he would defeat every one of their enemies. Instead of the Israelites believing in God, they believed in their circumstances. And I think that's easy. Each one of us kind of does that. I do that probably more than I like to admit. I'll look at my circumstances and let that dictate my decisions more than I look at my faith 
in what God will do for me. I think that's a hard thing in our culture because sometimes we say, well, that's logical. That's just being realistic. And the Israelites could have easily said, we're just being logical. We're being realistic. Our enemies are way too big for us. We could never, ever defeat them. But look what God says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 1 through the prophet Moses. God said to them, look, this is Moses speaking the word of God. Look, he has placed the land in front of you. Go and occupy it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. The God knew the Israelites were going to be discouraged. He knew that they were going to be intimidated. So he said to them, don't be. I'm going to take care of your enemies for you. But what did the Israelites do? A few verses later, it says, But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you refused to go in. You complained in your tents and said, The Lord must hate us. That's why he has brought us here from Egypt, to hand us over to the Amorites to be slaughtered. The Israelites didn't believe God. They didn't believe the warning that God gave them. They didn't believe the instruction God gave them. So they were going to have to deal with some pretty serious consequences. And the consequences to the rebellion was that that generation would never make it in the promised land. That even though God had promised to them that they would come in the promised land because of their rebellion against God, they would not get into the promised land and that generation would die in the desert and the next generation would actually be the ones to enter into the promised land. But see, what the Israelites did was they heard God tell them, no, you'll never enter in. And so they repented again. And then they thought, we'll go into the promised land anyway. Nobody's going to stop us. So another act of rebellion, they arrogantly went into the promised land thinking that they could defeat the enemies. And what happened? They got defeated by the enemies. God had clearly told them that they had consequences for their sin. They weren't going to get into the promised land no matter how hard they tried. There was a serious consequence for the Israelites' rebellion against God. They missed out on a blessing that God had for them. But now God was still faithful to the Israelites. He still protected them from their other enemies. He provided food for them. He provided water for them. He kept his promise that their shoes did not even wear out while they were in the desert. He took care of every one of their needs. But their actions had some serious consequences. And they missed out on some big blessings by not making it into the promised land. And who knows how many blessings that they missed out. And I think that there is a pervasive idea in American Christianity that we can do whatever we want in sin and get away with it. That God will just automatically forgive us and act like nothing ever really happened. There's sometimes a pervasive idea, I think, in American Christianity that thinks if we sin, we can repent, and any consequences will just mysteriously disappear. But we see in this passage in the Old Testament that there was consequences for acts of rebellion that were very strong against God when he warned the Israelites over and over what to do and not to do. Now, there is grace for people that are trying to follow Jesus, that are trying to do the right thing, that make Jesus a priority, that you mess up occasionally, and you don't do the right thing, and you occasionally sin. There's a whole different level of grace for that. But when people actively rebel against God and go against the way God has told them to act and to believe, 
there's consequences. And what the Israelites realized is they could pray and repent, but they still had to deal with some of the consequences of their own sin. It's a harsh reality sometimes of the consequences that rebellion can have. But we need to remember that God is always compassionate. God is slow to anger. That's not his first move. God clearly warned the Israelites time and time again. And Jesus always invites us to draw near to him. And when he invites us and we go to Jesus, he does forgive us. And he continues to restore our life and continues to transform our life. However, sometimes consequences can last longer than we anticipate. So this beautiful book of Hebrews does remind us that Jesus is better than anything that you have. And it reminds us not to get focused in on our circumstances because when you look at your circumstances too long, it's going to defeat you just like the Israelites. The book of Hebrews reminds us if God went through all the effort and all the work to send His Son Jesus to die on the cross for us, what more could He show you to show you how much He loves you? And the book of Hebrews is summarized in what God did for you and His Son. There's nothing better than He could do for us. But the book of Hebrews reminds us that, yeah, it's tempting to give up. So you have to stay in community. You have to be around other believers. You need to have fellowship with other people. And us as believers, we need to daily be thinking, how can I encourage somebody else? Because a lot of us struggle. A lot of us do look at our circumstances and think, man, this is overwhelming. I do want to give up. I think we know what it feels like to be part of the early church and just say, this is too much. But the author says, gather together and think of ways to encourage other people. It's so important. Now what's interesting is that the church is so important to God and it's so important to Jesus, but yet Jesus doesn't really bring it up that much. Jesus only references the church two or three times in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 16 and 18. Jesus spends more time talking about the kingdom of God. All through scripture, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is like, how we live in the kingdom of God. You think of the Beatitudes, you think of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about what is life like in the kingdom of God, but he doesn't bring up the word church that much, which is kind of surprising. It's all surprising that the word Jesus used for church, when he brings it up the first time in Matthew 16, Jesus says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not conquer it. That's the first time Jesus brings up the word church. But you know what's interesting? That church, that word church, ecclesia, that's the Greek word, it's not a brand new word. You would think Jesus is talking about the church, he would bring up a brand spanking new word, and say, I'm going to introduce you to a brand new word. I'm going to talk to you all about this word church and what it means. He brings up a word that most historians say was used for already 100 or 200 years. The word ecclesia was a secular word. It wasn't a spiritual word. It would have been, it would have been more logical if Jesus would have said, upon this temple or upon this synagogue, I'm going to build my kingdom. But he says ecclesia. The word ecclesia, if it's a literal definition, means people that are called out and assembled together. But the word wasn't used in spiritual or religious settings. It was used in government settings. 
It was used to talk about government structures that would rule parts of the Roman Empire or Roman part of the Greek culture, the Greek state, or the Greek nation. It's more of a governmental word. You'll notice throughout the Bible when it does have the word ecclesia, sometimes it's translated church when Jesus and the disciples are using it, and sometimes it's translated assembly when it's talking about government people getting together to make decisions on behalf of the people. So why does Jesus use this brand new word? I mean, it seems, why does he use a used word? It seems a little confusing. But see, when the people are hearing Jesus' word, they're starting to say, ah, I understand what you're talking about. Because they're saying, okay, on the one hand, you have a government, you have the Roman Empire, and then you have people that are part of the leadership of that government. And they help rule and reign, and they help people to live by the structure within the Roman Empire. So if that's how the ecclesia works, that's how it's going to work in the kingdom of God as well. Because Jesus spends all his time talking about the kingdom of God, and the ecclesia means people that are called out and live in the assembly together. So what Jesus is doing, he's taken a word that was used for centuries that give the apostles and the people, the followers of Jesus, some understanding that it means you gather together to implement the rules of the kingdom. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to take a word that you already understand and I'm going to breathe new life in it because I'm going to bring transformation to that word. And so Jesus takes a word that's been used and he speaks life into it and transforms the meaning that it would become the assembly of the body of Christ. And what Jesus sets up for is what, the, what, what Jesus is setting up for is a transformation that happens to every person that is called out and brought into the church goes through transformation. He doesn't just make a brand new person, doesn't say you've got to start over again, but he takes a person and he transforms them, and he transforms their purpose, and transforms their role, and brings them into the ecclesia. So what you see is Jesus takes an old word, an old idea, and breathes new life into it, and to give it new meaning. So we see from the very beginning that the purpose of the church was transformation. That would happen by the words of Jesus. Jesus could have picked another, he could have picked a brand new word for the word church. But instead, he used a word that had been around for hundreds of years that meant people called out and gathered together and be transformed in the process. So transformation, the renewal of people, has always been foundational to the gathering of people together. That the transformation needs to happen in order to see the ecclesia come into fruition. But for many decades, the church in America kind of forgot that transformation part of church. I think our church has got used to living into a culture where Christianity was pretty much accepted. It was pretty much mainstream and people liked having a church in their community and they actually liked pastors and they trusted pastors. For decades, churches kind of got used to being accepted in culture and kind of forgot about transformation. I think a lot of churches, we spend a lot of energy educating the younger people in the church but once they became adults sometimes adult education and churches kind of drifted it wasn't always there to the place that it should have been and the transformation was not always highlighted as one friend said mine ed silvoso says that the church sometimes looked more like a transfer station 
People simply going to church, waiting to go to heaven someday, but not actually getting the transformation that they needed. And you saw that back in the 80s and 90s, churches started talking again about spiritual formation, about discipleship needs to be back in churches and needs to be inserted into churches because churches were finding that the people in the church were not much different than people outside of the church. I think the church for so many decades enjoyed kind of an acceptance by the culture and they kind of got lax and easy on transformation. But you've seen in the last 20 or so years that churches are not appreciated very much. That's why it's kind of nice that we're in a neighborhood that the neighbors actually prefer to have a church here. There was a time when people loved having churches in their neighborhood. They loved pastors, they trusted pastors, they trusted church leaders. But over time, people started to view church people and started saying, well, they're just a little bit strange, a little bit different, but that's okay. We'll tolerate them. They're kind of, they don't make a whole lot of sense. They seem kind of irrelevant to the world, but we'll tolerate them. But now the view in our culture is that Christianity is dangerous and it's harmful to society. Many people outside of the church look at Christianity and think it's dangerous and it's harmful to society. There's a quote in your notes by Philip Ryken. He wrote a book, City on the Hill. He says, There are intensifying perceptions that faith is at the root of a vast number of societal ills. A lot of people in our culture think the church is to blame for the problems in our cities, in our state, in our nation. And it's interesting, he wrote that book about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, that was kind of the popular view, and that is continuing to escalate the view in our culture, in our cities, that Christianity is dangerous. So how do we respond? How do we respond to people's allegations about the church being dangerous? Or that we have gone from being strange or a little kooky to being irrelevant and now we're dangerous. I mean, on one hand, you want to fight and say, no, we're not like that at all. And I know none of you are like that. I think I know everybody here and I know you're not like that at all. You are a good reflection of who Christ is. You are a good ambassador to Jesus. But as a pastor in Nashville, Scott Saul says, He says, in our poor representation, we have created a public relations nightmare for the movement that Jesus began through his death, burial, and resurrection. Many people in church and church culture, in the name of Jesus, have created a public relations nightmare by things that they've done or the way they've acted or the way they behaved or the way they've called or the names they've called people. It hasn't been good. It's been disappointing. I guess we can take some comfort to know it's happened in the Bible as well. That Christians have not, or followers of God, have not always been the best reflection of the Lord they follow. So in many ways, we're kind of reaping what a lot of generations have sown. So how do we respond? I mean, on one hand, we want to say, I'm not like that. And that's good. Well, 
But I think instead of trying to defend, it's an invitation for us to even live a more radical life. That we live an even more radical life to be more like Jesus than we've ever been before. I don't think we're going to convince other people that know the church is different now just by saying to them it's changed, but we're only going to convince people by our actions and by the way we treat people and the way we live our life. People are not going to want to follow Jesus if they don't see an illustration first. I mean, many times that's the situation. People are looking for an illustration I think now more than ever, we need to be very obedient to the words of Jesus. And we can't compromise. We can't be like the Israelites that live outside of the promised land and say, no, a little too intimidating for me right now. We have to listen to the words of Jesus and follow when he says go. And do when he says go. I like what John Piper says. He says, there are three. We all drink. John Piper says there's three options. the Great Commission. There's three options to the Great Commission. Let me read the Great Commission to you first. I'm going to read it from Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. wandering around. That's the Great Commission. And as John Piper says, there are three responses to the Great Commission. Number one is you go. Number two is you send. Or number three is you disobey. And I think it's felt pretty comfortable to disobey the Great Commission. I know many times it's been comfortable for me to just disobey it. But there's two options, go or send. And I think we have to take that really serious as a church, that we are called to the Great Commission. We are called to either go or we're called to send or we disobey. And we can be like the Israelites and live outside of the promised land and just always kind of wonder what would life have been like if we would have done what God had called us to do. 
the biggest blessings. The Israelites missed out because they were scared, because they were fearful. God said, go, I'll be with you. Uh, it was intimidating, and it's easy to do. But it's a new day. It's a new opportunity. It's a new neighborhood. God's put us in a new church, in a new building. Who knows what's ahead of us? I'll be honest, there's many times in the last year we wondered, would we even make it this far? Some of you know the last year has been pretty tricky and it's been pretty tough on our church and many churches in the city and across the nation. That is leadership we've met and we've wondered, is Lake Effect over? Have we done our time? Is, you know, we, we, we've decreased in numbers. Some people left our church for great reasons. Some people I had great meals with before they left and they went to different churches and I blessed them and that's great. Some people had to leave because they wanted their kids in a Sunday program. And then there's some people that, frankly, are just gone. And they don't return calls, and they don't return texts, and I don't know where they are. And it's been sad over the last year to watch a lot of people leave, and a lot of people, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not bitter about the ones that left well. There's a lot of people left well and we're friends with them. I want you to understand that well. But we kind of wondered, is this the end of Lake Effect, where we just called for a three, four-year run, and then that is it? But we're still here. And as a leadership, we've kind of felt God's kind of still here. God keeps providing for our needs. God has given us this amazing building, way bigger than we could have imagined, cheaper than being at Grand Valley. Okay, maybe the air conditioning doesn't work as well as Grand Valley, but it's beautiful to be in here. In this mysterious way that God has provided for our needs and he's given us something that we probably never anticipated some of you know the story that I used to come here. I came here probably about six or so months after Lake Effect Church was launched, and I used to walk around. What? I know. I used to walk around this church and pray that God would revive this church or He would give it to us. I did that three years ago. And then Becky joined me. We used to walk around this church about every month and pray that God would either revive the church in here or to give it to us or I could give it to somebody else. Which fortunately, he gave it to the Sudanese. And then they invited us to rent from them, which is kind of the best deal in the world. They got to deal with all the problems with the air conditioner. I just show up and turn on a couple fans. God's miraculously brought us to this place. And it would be easy and it's intimidating to say, well, let's not go forward. Let's hold back like the Israelites did. Because it looks intimidating. But God says, go and I'll be with you. And I think that's what God is saying to us. Go and I will be with you. And it's intimidating because it is smaller, but in some ways, I tell you this to hopefully bring comfort, every church I know is dealing with this right now. I meet with a group of pastors on the west side and churches from a thousand plus to churches our size are all dealing with a decrease in attendance. 
I talked to another pastor of a church similar size that we are. He says, there are 15 families in our church that I have no idea where they're at. They don't return my calls. They don't return text. They're just gone. And many churches are dealing with that reality right now. Even big churches, a thousand plus, are dealing with big pockets of their church just gone and we don't know where they're at. It's discouraging, but it's also an invitation for us. It's an invitation for us to encourage other people that maybe have given up. To find ways to encourage people who may have thought it's easier to go back to the way I lived before. I think we have to take the words of Hebrews 10 very serious, that we need to think of ways to encourage other people so they don't give up. I think that's an invitation that God is giving to us as a church and as a community. Tim Keller gives this wonderful kind of a summary of the mission of the church. I want to read it to you. While the mission of the institutional church is to preach the word and produce disciples, the church must disciple Christians in such a way that they live justly and integrate their faith with their work. So the church doesn't directly change culture, but it disciples and supports people who do. Another balance has to do with society's cultural institutions. Rather than taking them over or, or avoiding them, as a corrupting influence or treating them with indifference, Christians are to be a faithful presence within them. That we are called to be a faithful presence in the midst of society. That we are discipled and we disciple other people so that we live justly and we integrate our faith into every single thing that we do. That is how we are the ecclesia. That's how we are the people that are called out, that are transformed by the word of God, and then we have influence into our society. No different than the ecclesia with the small e was used to talk about how people would have influence in the Roman Empire. We as the ecclesia have influence because we live in the kingdom of God. And that's what we are called to do. See, Christians are never compelled People are never compelled. I'm saying this wrong. Let's get that. See, it's interesting that in church, usually church calendar kind of starts September 1. September 1 in church world is usually January 1. It's the beginning of a new year when people come back in the fall after summer and we kind of start a new year. And so a lot of churches always look at um, the fall as kind of relaunch time. But it's interesting now after COVID, every church is talking about relaunching in the fall. Every church is talking about how are we going to try to get people back? How are we going to get our Sunday school program back? How are we going to get things relaunched? It's such a, it's, it's happening so much that I'm now starting to get in mail to me saying, dear pastor, as you relaunch your church this fall, here's what you need. Here's resources that you can buy. Everybody's kind of looking at relaunching in the fall. And I think as a church, we're kind of in that situation. You know, five years ago, we were planning Lake Effect Church, and what you do is you get a launch team together, and you say, hey, we want to pull a church together. You want to be part of this church, part of this launch. We need you to help us as we, as we move forward into planting a church. 
And we're kind of in a similar situation that we were today as we were five years ago. We have a core group of people that are committed and we have an outreach that we want to do together. We want to be a church that would have an influence in our city. We want to be a church that would change the atmosphere of our church. When Lake Effect Church was founded, it was founded under the four, princ- four pillars that people would know God, that people would find freedom, that they would discover purpose, and that they would make a difference. And we're committed to doing that. We want people to know God and to find freedom in their life. But a few months ago, as a leadership team, we came up with a, a mission statement that even draws it more focused, that we want to be a church that are people that are dedicated, they're devoted to Christ and His message for the world. That's what we want to be, a people that are known as devoted to Christ and His message to the world. And as we are going through the summer period, as we look forward to fall, we are talking relaunch. I mean, we're talking replanning, rebooting, whatever you want to call it, because we have a lot of things that we need to restart. And I'm thankful for all of you for being so faithful to hang in there through these difficult times. Thank you for your love and support. And encouragement. Thank you for being the Hebrews 10 church to think of ways to encourage because we don't want to give up just because of the way circumstances look. But what we're going to ask you to do is to, to pray about how you can be part of relaunching or rebooting this church this summer as we look forward to the fall. You know, if you want to, you know, maybe some of you are sitting there going, I've always had this idea. Why don't we try this? Why don't we do that? Well, this is kind of your opportunity. You know, if you want to meet with me or meet with Becky or meet with both of us and breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, whatever you want to do, let us know. Becky and I are going to try to find a time. I got to work with a church schedule here. Maybe we can do a, a Wednesday night meeting and people can come together and have a meal together and share. What, what ideas do you have? Or maybe there's a part of church where you would like to serve. Maybe one of you saying, you know, I've always kind of would like to kind of be part of a kid's ministry, helping reboot that, relaunch that. Now's your opportunity. Or maybe you're like, I'd like to be part of a hospitality team that kind of sets up coffee and greets people. Maybe he's saying, well, I'd kind of like to, um, to help set up. You want to do some of this tech stuff, or maybe you like do yard work, or maybe you have some other creative ideas. Now's the time to come together as this ecclesia that's been called by God to called here to together to kind of rebirth a church. I need you to do that. I want you to do that. I invite you to do that. Even if you think it's going to sound a little critical, we invite that because a lot of you have some really good ideas. A lot of you have great stories and great testimonies and we would love to hear from you where you would love to serve. Because I do think that we have great days ahead of us. I do think we have great opportunities ahead of us. We have a world that is hurt. We have a world that's discouraged. And we have a world that needs comforting. And this is a body right here of really authentic Christians. I love all of you. And I know your stories. I know what you've been through. I know what you've overcome. And I know what a blessing you would be to another person if you mentored them or if you encouraged them or if you had a meal with them. 
We're a great group of people that can make a big difference in the world. I want to close with another quote by Tim Keller. He wrote it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. It's one of my favorite books. It's a book on marriage. If you're married, you need to buy it and read it. And if you're not married, buy it and read it because it's a good book that talks about covenant and it talks about relationships. You don't have to be married to really jump in this book. Seriously, if, you've, if you're married, you never read the book, buy two of them. Read it together. I love this quote by Tim Keller. This doesn't, this doesn't just apply to married people. It applies to people. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. I think that resonates with a lot of people. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. That's what it's to be loved by God, to be fully known and fully loved. It's what we need more than anything. What we need more than anything is to be fully known and fully loved. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw our way. I think he's right. When people are fully known and fully loved, it does have the power of transformation. But none of us are capable of really loving a person that well. You can only do that by the power of Jesus working in your life. You can only do that because you've been transformed by Jesus. That you spent so much time with Jesus that you become like Jesus so you can do the things that Jesus has done. And that's our goal, is to do the things Jesus has done so we can love our neighbors well. And we can love them with sincerity. And we can love them so they'd want to be part of the family of God. That they'd want to be part of the church. That they would want to be part of the ecclesia. It's sad to read about some people that want to be a Christian, but they don't want to be part of a church. And we have a great opportunity ahead of us. We have a wonderful opportunity because we have a lot of really wonderful people in this church. I think a lot of people would really like to come to this church. We just need to pray and we need to seek God and we need to see some people come to salvation. So, let's pray. And then Jake, you can come up and lead us in a song. And then after the service is done, we'll turn off the cameras and we want to pray for anybody that needs healing or wants prayer. And so... Um, well, after Jake leads the song, I'll come back up to lead if people want to be prayed for. So let me pray to close the service. God, I thank you for today. And God, I thank you for the opportunities that you have ahead of us. And Lord, we want to be obedient. We want to be obedient to you, obedient to your word. We want to be obedient to the Great Commission. We want to do what you're calling us to do. But Lord, just like the Israelites and like the apostles, Lord, we need more boldness. So we come before you today, Lord, and we ask for more boldness. That you'd give us more strength. That, Lord, you'd take away any fear that we might be dealing with. Take away any anxiety that might be plaguing us. Take away any nervousness that might interfere with us doing what you've called us to do. 
God, sometimes our logic and our reasoning seems to have such a front row seat in our lives. And Lord, we don't want that to be that way. But we just want to follow you by faith. And we want to follow you, Lord, in the community of other believers that you called us to live in. God, help us to be the ecclesia that is called out, that does speak words of encouragement to other people. Help us to take the scripture serious when we think about ways to encourage other people. Help us to do that today and tomorrow and the next day. Help us to be known as a church that encourages us. And God, I pray that you take these efforts that we have to, um, to minister to our neighborhood and to pray for our neighborhood and that you would multiply them. That supernaturally that you would give us divine appointments and divine encounters with our neighbors to talk to them and communicate with them so we can share your word and your gospel to our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.